Last night, <clears throat> last night at supper, Heather reminded me of a Zen story that um, I haven't thought about or told in a little while. Um, we were talking about um, equanimity, and uh, she reminded me of um, uh, a story that I heard when I first began to practice, which is 30 years ago now, a little bit more. And uh, I'll tell you the story, and then I'll tell you the, uh, a little bit about what I thought about it then, and how it has grown in my mind since then. It's a story told about a Zen master in a certain uh, village in Japan a long, long time ago, uh, in the time of uh, samurai bands roaming the countryside, and uh, in some cases, in a warlike way, terrorizing people. So the word was out that the samurai band was approaching this village and uh, the villagers fled, and uh, all the monks in the monastery fled, and uh, the abbot did not flee, he stayed. And the story is told that this band of warriors arrived, and especially the chief of the warriors, the most warlike of them all, who thought of himself as particularly fierce, heard that the abbot had not fled, and it, um, inflamed his ire that his uh, great reputation for ferocity hadn't frightened the abbot. And so he, uh, in the story, came into the shrine room where the abbot was seated on his zafu, and he brandished his sword, and he said, don't you know that I'm the sort of person that could run you through with my sword without batting an eye? And the Zen master said to him, I do know, and I am the sort of man who could be run through with a sword without batting an eye. <laughs> so, I want to tell you a little bit of... At which point? At which point. <laughs> it's an important part of the story. At which point, the warrior leader bows to the abbot, gives up his warrior way, becomes a disciple of the abbot. <laughs> Probably goes on to get enlightened. <laughs> we could embellish it more, who knows. In any event, I want to tell you that that story has grown. I have, my appreciation for that story has grown over the years. When I first heard it, there were two things about it that didn't sit well with me. One is, I thought to myself, uh, that abbot had such uh, equanimity that uh, he didn't care whether he lived or died. And I didn't feel that I was ever going to be in a place like that, that it seemed to me that uh, I like living. And, um, uh, I wasn't hoping, actually, to be in a place where it was all the same to me, whether I lived or died. And if that was a point of practice, I worried about that a little bit. <laughs> but then the other thing that I thought about, was that, which caused me not to like the story terribly much, was that I thought, I'm never going to be able to do that. And I think I was actually wrong in two ways. 
First of all, I think I was wrong about deciding that the abbot didn't care whether he lived or died. It doesn't say that the abbot doesn't care if he lived or died. I don't know if he cared if he lived or died. I think that when faced with imminent death, the only non-suffering way is to not have the mind fight with it. That his decision to say I could be run through without batting an eye means, you know, if that's what's happening to me, I'll die without suffering. Doesn't say a thing about whether he wanted to live or not live, or preferred or didn't prefer. And then the other part of it, which I think I was also wrong about, is that I thought, well, that's what Zen masters can do and abbots, but not regular people. But over the course of the last 30 years, I've known all kinds of regular people who have died really calmly, without batting an eye, in a loving way, thanking and appreciating their world and their people. Not so long after I heard that story, and this was a long time ago, so my friend was young, my friend Pat died, and she died of uh, breast cancer. And uh, she knew her death was coming, and uh, she uh, needed to reconcile with her former husband, with the now new wife of the former husband. She felt she needed to make sure that all of her karma with everyone was clear. She uh, needed to make sure, she felt, that all of her four teenage children were comfortable going to live with their father and his new partner. She had a uh, law client tell she was a lawyer uh, here in Marin County, and she had to end her practice and make sure that she had safely transferred all her clients to other people. And she did all of those things. She invited her whole family, her children, her former husband, his new partner, for Thanksgiving dinner in her house, which they all cooked because she was too weak to get up and participate. Afterwards, she told me, you know, it isn't true that I didn't have a single bad thought the whole day. And I said, I think that you are probably planning to be canonized before you die. And you have to first wait till after. It's all right to have not had every single thought perfect. But I came to visit her on probably the day before she died. And she was very weak at that point, and she was in bed at that time. She knew that it was that day or the next day. And I came into her room, and she was propped up in bed reading the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> and it just seemed like odd and pet. And she said, you know, I have done every single thing I could do. And now I've got nothing left to do, so I might as well read the paper. That's, that's really not batting an eye. My friend Tamara died a year ago. She died of um, ovarian cancer. And my friend Tamara was a tremendous appreciator she was a tremendous thanker of people and an appreciator of people, and a wonderful friend. During the time that she was dying, she uh, sent all of her things that she loved the most to all of her friends as gifts. 
And each of us got a box wrapped in a really careful way, which was Pat's way, and with a letter in it. I have a, a jacket that came with a letter that said, um, I really love this jacket, and where I'm wearing She told where she got it. She's a beautiful dresser and bought lovely things. And I think, I think it'll fit you. Um, and I can imagine you wearing it. She sent things, all her other things to other people. In the end, she was in the hospice. And in the very end, she was very, very um, weak. When I called her on the last day that she was alive, um, she was too weak to answer the telephone in her room. So I called the nurse at the nurse's station and had her go in and pick up the phone and hold it to her ear so she could talk. And um, she said, this is very hard. And I said, well, I know, but probably not too long. And she said, oh, wait a minute. She said, uh, the nurses are just fixing my blankets now. You know, she said, the nurses here have been so wonderful. They've taken such good care of me. This is practically with her last breath. To be able to appreciate and be grateful up to the last minute, to remember that there's a world out there of other people, to be thanking the nurses in the middle of dying. I think that's without batting an eye. I think ordinary people do it. A lot of ordinary people in planes that um, crashed on September 11th called people at home and said, I'm not going to get home and I'm going to die, the plane is going to crash. But I love you. Take good care of the children, take care of yourself. Even now, if I tell you that, I get goose pimples. Ordinary people do that. So the mind, their minds were not um, at ease, but their minds were clear. This is what's going to happen. When it's clear what's going to happen, what the truth is, then all the stuff that's not necessary in the mind gets cleared out of the mind. And what's left is, I love you. Take good care of yourself. Take care of the children. Nobody left a message that said, I never liked your mother. Now, seriously, at that point, the mind gets completely clear. I remember it used to be, not so much anymore, when you'd say, greet somebody. This is because I lived some years in the Midwest. Yeah, I think it's a Midwestern kind of a thing. You'd say to somebody, how are you? And they'd say, can't complain. Remember that? People say, can't complain. And I think that meant I'm not worse off than I might be at this point. You know? <laughs> It meant things are pretty good. But I think it's actually a fabulous thing to say. You can't complain. Ever you can't complain. Because complaining is always extra. Even if you're really in a seriously bad place. Complaining makes it worse. That wisdom, the kind of wisdom that remembers that things are what they are because they couldn't be other. It's the kind of wisdom that allows the natural goodness of mind, the natural goodness that's appreciative and friendly and compassionate and consoling, it allows it to manifest. And in the manifesting, 
the mind takes care of itself and you as well. I think there's no more safe refuge than one's own benevolent mind. One's own mind in the mood of well-wishing, friendly and compassionate and appreciative, which I think all of our minds are when we're not confused. The line in the Metta Sutta, which we now all have, all the lines are important. The line that I think is a clue line to how we can manage to really manifest universal benevolence to everyone is the line in gladness and in safety. Wishing in gladness and in safety. When our own minds It's a hard stretch to go to go from there to the people in the falling down airlines. They weren't and it's safe, and they certainly can't have been glad. But the gladness and safety about that moment, I think, is the relief of seeing clearly and of being able to connect fully with one's own capacity to love and express it no matter what. There was some story that I heard at retreats. I can't remember who it was about. I think it was about um, a, a, a Zen teacher in, in our time, a contemporary woman, in the, at least in the last 50 or 60 years, who, um, whose dying death phrase, Zen masters are known for uh, being told, okay, you know, this is your time coming, better say you're death phrase now, and saying their, their pithiest understanding of the Dharma. <laughs> there are books of the death sayings of famous Zen masters. They're wonderful, actually. This one particular woman died saying, thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> I actually think that's breathless, breathtaking. I would like to be able to say that. I love you all very much, thank you very much. I have no complaints. To complain means that I have not understood at some point that things could not be other, that this mysterious karma that manufactures our lives and creation along with what we do, certainly, but way bigger than what we particularly do. If I were the author of all of my own experience, I would think only lovely thoughts and have only lovely things happen, but I'm not in charge. What I do is a small piece of the whole karmic unfolding. And that's true for everybody. This metta practice that we've been doing all week, which is one part of what is known as Brahma-vihara practice, sublime abodes practice, is actually the practice of cultivating wisdom through the cultivation of equanimity. That, of course, as we say these phrases of well-wishing, we're inclining the mind towards its own natural benevolence. But in addition, the very practice of continuing, continuing, continuing with these prayers, with these resolves, 
which first of all is inclining the mind and second of all is stopping all of the extra stuff in the mind, all of the planning and chattering and figuring and lamenting and complaining and everything else and worrying about it. The very practice itself which steadies the mind and ultimately clears it of everything else is the place that leads to equanimity and out of that equanimity the wisdom of really understanding that not complaining in the biggest sense, meeting every moment and every person as a friend is really a wise and in fact liberating move. I sometimes do as a meditation for myself, I say the phrase, the sentence, I usually say it on an in and out breath, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. And I actually think that's the whole of mindfulness and loving-kindness practice together. Meeting the whole of the moment, not hiding from any of it, and not begrudging any of it, not having a contest with it, not getting into a fight with it. It doesn't mean liking it, because this is what's happening. I don't like it, but it's happening. I hope it changes. Everything that arises passes away, May this pass away soon. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free of suffering. I said that particular last whole sentence for you to see that I think it's seamless mindfulness and loving-kindness practice. If I let myself know the whole truth of what's happening, I'll know how I feel about it, what I like about it, and the wish that comes from my heart about it. From my, for myself or for somebody else. I think it's equanimity that actually sustains that wisdom, and act, actually equanimity that allows for that wisdom. And the practice of concentration that we're doing here is in the service of developing equanimity. So the story that I'd like to tell you is an image that I have in mind. It's a story of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment experience. And some of you perhaps are new to Buddhism and don't know the story, and some of you are familiar with it. It's a story that shows up in a lot of, uh, in, a, in a picture form, in a lot of children's coloring books, Buddha's children's coloring books, because it's such a good picture. So I'd like you to visualize this picture. Here is uh, Siddhartha Gautama, um, after several years of practice, of intense meditation practice, having left his family in quest of the truth about the cause and the end of suffering, has given up the practices that he had and said, I'm going to discover this by myself, comes to Bodh Gaya, sits down under a tree that is famous and makes the declaration as he sits down, I'm not going to get up from this place until I am fully enlightened, until I've really understood, until I'm free. I love that story, by the way, even up to that part. The story is much more than that. But I love that story because I... I, I, I 
not infrequently, say that to myself if I'm all disturbed about something and I go to sit. I say to myself, I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. And uh, yeah, well, usually when I tell that, people laugh, like, really, you don't think you're going to get enlightened like the Buddha? Really, I don't. But at that moment, it doesn't matter that I think that, you know, I don't start to think, well, like the Buddha, not like the Buddha. It's the energy of that resolve that thrills me. I imagine sitting down and saying, I'm not getting up until I have broken through and I'm fully liberated. That's thrilling. So he sat down, he makes that resolve, and sat down with great, great equanimity. Understand he had done six years of practice by that point, instilling the mind, really stilling the mind so that it could just stay still, quiet, no matter what. And it said that it radiated out from that stillness of equanimity, that unshakable poise that he had, a kind of um, protective shield. Because into the place where the Buddha was sitting, apparently the word got out in the cosmic realms that the Buddha is about to break through and become enlightened. And the forces of Mara, and Mara is depicted as some being coming riding in on a horse with armies of Mara and swords and spears. Mara being all the kind of fears and afflictive energies that, that trouble the mind and frighten it. Mara, having had the news that the Buddha is about to become enlightened, can't let that happen and comes running in with her armies and spears and bows and arrows and attacks and apparently unleashes this bows and arrows and spears at the Buddha, who says, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that story. I think that that particular line, I am not afraid, is probably the best line in the whole world. You know, think about it. Sometimes I think about what I, the one word that would be what I'd like to feel if I could have one thing. I'd like to be fearless. I'd like to be fearless. Because if I were fearless, I'd be completely loving. I'd live in a world with only, with no villains in it and nothing to be frightened of. In the story, the Buddha puts uh, one hand down on the ground and touches the earth and says, I have a right to be here because the earth is my witness. I have a right to be here. I love that. I'm not going to be moved. So here comes Mara with all the spears and arrows. Nothing happens because the Buddha is not moved. And then Mara changes the attack from spears and arrows to erotic, tantalizing visions, which also could upset and seduce and distract the mind. And the Buddha, with his resolve, has such resolve that the erotic images are all dissipated. He's not moved. And in the story and in the coloring books, which is really nice, 
all of those arrows and all of those temptations and all of the elements that assail the Buddha don't get anywhere near him because he's surrounded by this great protective shield of equanimity. And as, as all of those attacks come near to the shield, they are changed and they fall on the ground around him as flowers. So I think that's a great image. If every afflictive thought in the world could be deflected and fall around us as flowers. So in the morning, after that night of dwelling in equanimity, the Buddha declared his own enlightenment. I've really understood. I'm really free. It's said, by the way, that he didn't go right off to teach, that um, he spent some time in the neighborhood of that experience, consolidating his understanding, thinking about what he would do next, and thinking about going out and teaching what he knew. And part of the story is that he hesitated about going out and teaching, thinking about how much confusion there was in the world, how much greed and hatred and delusion, how far from equanimous most people's minds were, how vast the task would be. And said that he hesitated about going out. And uh, the story is, that some heavenly messengers appeared to him and gave him the counsel that he really should go out and teach on behalf of those people who would understand on behalf of all beings. I actually think, when I think about it, that those divine messengers are the stirrings of our own compassionate heart and his compassionate heart. I think it's lovely in the coloring book to have divine messengers, but I think they're really the, 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 me the messages that our own empathic minds provide for us when our minds are still enough to understand the truth, when there's enough equanimity present. So it said that the Buddha went and began to teach, and the fundamental crux of the teachings that he gave, he met a group of uh, uh, monks that he had been practicing with before his experience in Bodh Gaya. And the story says that uh, uh, the five monks saw him from a distance, and they said, oh, there is that lazy monk Siddhartha Gautama who gave up the real serious path of practice and went off on his own. And then the story goes on to say, when they came a little nearer to him, that they saw that he shone with a certain kind of extraordinary light and that his visage had a certain kind of extraordinary look about him and that they stopped and they knew that they, he really needed to teach them. And they were the first people that he taught. And in the sermon that he gave, the Sermon of Setting in Motion, the Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma. 
he expounded, among other things, the Four Noble Truths, things that he saw as being the truth of, of our experience, that life is challenging by its very nature for everyone. There is old age, sickness, and death if nothing else happens in between. But we know from our own lives that there are all kinds of challenges and that there's a certain way in which we are continually called upon in our lives to be readjusting. A friend of mine uh, who uh, moved into a, an assisted living at 95 asked me to come and teach there because it was hard for her. But she needed to be there at that point and give up her own apartment. And she said um, in her um, phone call to me, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation. And I went and I taught there, but that's a whole separate story. I thought so much about that, that one phrase, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation, because I think we all are, most of the time, from the beginning, <laughs> if you think about it. The whole long life, we're adjusting to our new situation. <laughs> from going to kindergarten to you know, learning algebra to learning how to have an adult body to learning how to use that adult body to learning how to make a relationship and earn a way to a livelihood and before you know it, get old. And uh, we're always getting used to a new situation. Way years and years ago, I had a poster up on my wall for a long time that said, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. But that really... I think there are so many levels of understanding that life is difficult for everyone. The word that, that, that's used in, in Pali is dukkha, and it means unsatisfactory more than suffering, because it doesn't mean that every moment of life is dreadful. There's certainly beauty and joy and music and art and there are things that gladden the heart, as Heather talked about last night. That's actually what holds the mind up, I think, that there is the hope of enlightenment and the joy of benevolence. Not that every moment is difficult, but that really there's no secure resting place. Everything is always changing and we're always accommodating. There's no place to rest. And the second noble truth is that really suffering, remember I said that the Buddha set off to see the cause and the end of suffering? really came to teach that suffering was the inability of the mind to accept the truth of the moment. Another way to say it would be the imperative in the mind to have the moment different, to have one's life be different, to have one's situation be different. That doesn't mean that one shouldn't want one's situation to be different. And there are lots of times when Say, well, you know, I, this doesn't work for me, I'll try something else. This doesn't work for me, I'll try something else. It doesn't mean anything to do about passivity. Sometimes we are presented with situations where we can't have it another way. 
very touched by a, a woman who, for a long time, um, has been part of the Wednesday morning group, who, uh, when she was diagnosed with MS early in her 40s, really um, vital and passionately involved in her life, young woman, she really said, I, I, I need this practice more than ever now because uh, I have to I have to practice the fact that this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. So often in life, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And to be able to say that, it happened like that. I think we're more or less all in the same boat about that, regardless of what's going on with us. We don't know what's going to happen and challenge us in the moment. So the first noble truth is that there is suffering. And the second is that suffering is the imperative in the mind to have things different. And the third noble truth is that peace is possible in this very life, with this very body, with all the things that happened to it, with its very story. It's an amazing experience. I remember, remember the first inklings that I had in my own practice, stories too long to tell right now, that were plain as anything. You know, I've been thinking about uh, what would be a great moment in meditation, and I had more fireworks idea of what would be a great moment in meditation. And I realized that the great moments for me that really changed me were moments in which I was sitting or walking, and I realized suddenly that everything was absolutely okay with me, that my life didn't need to change, my situation didn't need to change. The first time I realized that I was sitting on a cold stone bench outside of uh, Angela's Center, up in Santa Rosa, and uh, I was hungry, and it was a little bit um, foggy, and I'd gone out to sit down on the bench just before lunchtime. It was a kind of a gray day in February, and the leaves on the trees had all fallen off, and I was sitting on the bench and sitting quietly and breathing in and out. And, and the bell rang for lunch, and I was a little hungry. But I was sitting there breathing in and out, and I realized no imperative arose in my mind to leap up and go get the lunch. It was such a strange moment, no imperative in it. And I checked out the whole rest of my life. Is that all right, too? It's fine. It's just what it is. And I thought, because I'd read a lot of Annie Dillard, and I'd been very impressed with a, a kind of wonderful vision she'd had where she was looking at a group of trees and the sun fell on them in a certain way and the brilliance just moved her so much. And I thought, I bet I'm going to open my eyes and everything's going to be shining and brilliant. And I opened my eyes and it was gray and the same trees. <laughs> but it was fine. And to notice that you can be in the middle of your life, even hungry and cold, and sitting in a fog on a stone bench, fine, fine and to then discover that you could do it in much more difficult times in your life. Be unhappy or 
unpleased with those difficult times, but fine. My friend Tamara, who I uh, told you died by thanking all the nurses for the fixing the bed covers, uh, had called me a year before on a Friday afternoon and left me a message on the answering machine. And I came home and found the message. And uh, the message began, Sylvia, she lived in Florida. She said, this is Tamara. I'm calling to tell you that you don't need to worry about me. So I thought, ah. She had, uh, a week before, had surgery for possible ovarian cancer. And uh, immediately, uh, two weeks before, I suppose, because she was up and moving around. And then uh, several days later, they had said, we think this is positive for, uh, we think it's negative for ovarian cancer. And a few days later, they called back and said, no, no, the pathologist has looked further. It's actually ovarian cancer. And then I got the phone call and said, Sylvia, you don't have to worry about me. And I thought, oh, she doesn't have cancer. And she said, you don't have to worry because Hurricane Francis is coming to Florida because I have friends who live more inland in a house that doesn't have glass, as much windows as I do. So they're coming to get me. And I'll just sit out the storm with them. So don't try to call me over the weekend or you know however long the storm is, and I'll call you when I get home. So several days passed, during which time I watched I watch the storm on the Weather Channel. I never watched so much Weather Channel. And I realized how important that weather in Florida became to me, because there was somebody dear to me in the middle of it. And the, 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 the uh, newscasters on the Weather Channel became dear to me because I see them, you know, they're always standing out in a gale. They could, all, they could go inside and make the, but it wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be theater then, so they're standing in a gale. One of them, a tile flew off the roof and this poor woman had a duck out of the camera and then she gets up and continues the broadcast. And I'm thinking her mother is watching her somewhere. <laughs> Anyway, Tamara called on Monday after she'd gotten home, and she said, um, when we talked, she said, uh, she said it was really something. She said, we all sat up all night in our pajamas and robes and, and huddled together in the living room, and the storm wall came through in the middle of the night. She said it sounded like a freight train, and we were all terrified. And what we did was we sat quietly together, but when we were really bad, we prayed for the people around us and the people in the houses around us and all the people in Florida and all the people that we knew and all the people that we didn't know. And she said, when we were praying for other people, we felt better. And then I told her about the fact that uh, when I'd gotten her phone call, for one tiny moment, I thought maybe she didn't have cancer. She said, no, no, I have cancer. She said, but you know, over the weekend, I forgot about it because it wasn't what was happening then. And then we were all in peril, cancer or no cancer, we we're all in peril. And she said, you know, she actually, she was, a, she was one of the founders of uh, New York Insight. She said, this would make a great Dharma talk. She'd give a Dharma talk called Worrying is Futile. 
You don't know what to worry about first, really. <laughs> but that piece of praying for other people takes you out of yourself, connects you to a whole world of people. In that moment, the whole of Florida was suffering. What the Buddha saw, I think, and I think what stirred his heart into compassion and got him out to teach was that the whole world is suffering. That the whole world is suffering from greed and hatred and delusion. So they haven't seen through it. They have not realized that acting on greed and hatred and delusion, which come up in everyone's mind, leads to more suffering. And that being able to meet each moment fully, meet it with kind intent, is really the only way to live peacefully. It's that sort of vision that everyone is suffering that brings out um, our own impulse to bless, to pray for, to wish well, whatever word suits you to say. So I want to talk in the time that's left about the ways, the three ways in which wishing well manifests itself out of a base of equanimity. You've all discovered during this week, because many of you, I think, have told me in interviews things like, um, it's hard for me to, however much I, I'm thinking about my friend so-and-so, who I love a lot, but who's very sick, so I don't, the, these metaphrases don't work well for her. I can't pray for her health because she's dying. Or, um, It's hard for me to think about this person and wish them well because I'm still so wounded by what they did that when I think of them, I become frightened and dismayed. Or sometimes when I think of a certain friend of mine, I discover how jealous I am of how she is then I think, why should I wish her well? I, I should have some of that stuff. <laughs> and then I feel bad about myself, that I'm not a good person. It's very complicated, wishing well. Really, it has to come out of a mind, not that's necessarily at ease, but one that's clear enough to remember what's true, that things are what they are because they couldn't be different that everybody suffers, that everybody wants to live with inner peace and outer peace, that everyone has the same desires that I do, that everyone's ineptitude comes from their blindness, comes out of ignorance. There are three flavors of experiences that we meet. Lots of times we have, we have neutral experiences, things that as you went through the day and the things that went happened. We will talk tomorrow about neutral people, but actually aren't so many neutral people when you start to think about who's a neutral person. We'll talk about that tomorrow morning. Not so many neutral people, we make judgments 
right away about most people. But people that we know a little bit and feel pretty neutral about. They're neutral experiences. They're pleasant experiences. Sometimes when there are pleasant experiences, we want more of them and the mind gets agitated with wanting. When there are unpleasant experiences, we want to get rid of them. The mind gets agitated with wanting to get rid of. When the mind is really, really clear and held firm in wisdom, everybody wants to be happy. Things are just what they are. They couldn't be different. Then the mind meets pleasant and unpleasant and neutral in a way that manifests as one or another permutation of benevolence or goodwill. I'll tell you three stories because it'll be easier to describe. I'll tell you these three stories. Um, I, I, fly, I, I fly a lot to teach in different places and uh, uh, you know from my telling you the other day that I live in France part of the year and I fly back and forth and that's a very, very long flight. And uh, the planes are crowded and not so comfortable. And especially from San Francisco to Paris, it's a lot, 10 hours and, you know, and it's overnight. If you walk for up and down the plane, if you get up in the middle of the night and you walk up and down the aisle to stretch a little bit or to go to the back or you see everybody is lying in every kind of scrunched up, uncomfortable position. Nobody ever it looks comfortable. It looks kind of like a, a little bit like a disaster area. You know, everybody slumped and crunched and people leaning on each other if they know each other or people trying not to lean on each other if they don't know each other. And, uh, there's always somebody with a baby walking up and down the aisle, patting that baby, trying to get it to quiet itself down and rocking in the way that you rock with babies. And, and you know, when I walk up and down that aisle and I look at all those people, I feel friendly with them, you know? I don't know any of them, but I feel like a, a tremendous kinship with them, you know? We're all in this together. It's remarkable that nobody that everybody keeps it together. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> and that everybody actually is trying so hard to not annoy other people, really. You really have a very sweet feeling about how good people are and how hard they try. And so I find that I'm wishing them well. I might be wishing them well in phrases, may you feel safe, may you feel happy. You know, that I really want us all to get there well. Not just me, but them too. And you can do it without distinction. I don't know anybody there, so I wish everybody. And actually, it makes my own mind in a better mood, because I feel like we're a group of people doing this trip together. And the, 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 the feelings of goodwill that I feel come up spontaneously keep me warm, they keep me company. If I were afraid of flying, if I had just had a fight with my somebody, if I'd had a fight, or if I'd been unhappy with 
something that had gone on in my mind was focused on it. I not only wouldn't notice all the people in the plane, but I wouldn't be able to have the experience of pleasure, of noticing, feeling my connection and kinship with them and wishing them well, but miss out on that pleasure. Actually, I tell you that story to make the point that when the situation is a fairly average one, not more scary or more anything else than normal, the natural response of the balanced mind is to wish well. We're all travelers together. I often think about planes being metaphors for this whole life. Not only do we all want to get to Paris in good shape, but we want to get to the end of our lives in good shape. It's a long flight that we're all sharing together from the beginning to the end on the spaceship Earth hurtling around the sun. That's kind of a, a, meta, a meta permutation of equanimity. I'll tell you a compassion permutation of equanimity because it's an airplane story too. On one flight coming back from Paris, a man died. I didn't see it happen, but um, I knew something was wrong. I watched the map. On, you know, I, I, I tend to be uh, doing needlepoint and watching the map in front of me. I find it tremendously consoling to watch the map because I see that the little plane icon <laughs> is keeping moving in the direction that I want to go. And it reassures me that, in actual fact, I'm coming closer to where I want to be. Somewhere, when I, when I, when I come over Halifax, I feel already better that we're halfway home. So somewhere over the North Atlantic, that little plane icon turned around, and it started to go back. And so I knew something was wrong, and I look around, and I see all around me, People are nudging each other, look at, the, look at the map, look at the map, look at the map. And then uh, a little while later, the pilot came on and said, uh, we're having a medical emergency and we're going to have to land for some emergency medical help. We also asked that any uh, physicians on board come forward and help. And since my husband's a physician, it's happened to us several times that he's gone up in those kind of cases. So he went and he was gone for an hour. And during that time, the flight continued in a regular way. The, the flight attendant served lunch and people ate lunch and people watched movies. And somehow I was, I was unnerved by the whole situation. I didn't feel like eating my lunch. And, um, I was thinking about, I wondered who it was, and I wondered if that person was alone, and I wondered how that person's family was going to feel about it. And at some point, I guess I was sitting and breathing and wondering about that and hoping that that person's family was all right. And I realized that my mind had started to do uh, really... Um, what amounts to really compassion resolves. 
May that person's suffering be over. May the suffering of that person's family be relieved. May that family be strengthened in this time of difficulty. I make up mostly Karuna resolves. I actually say set metaphrases, which I have really ingrained in my mind. But I more often than not make up Karuna phrases because there's something that means the traditional Karuna phrases. I feel this difficulty and it's significant to me. It matters to me. I care about this. I also say to myself always some phrase that settles my mind. I say to myself, I, I guess I did in that time, I'm unnerved, I'm upset. Everything that arises passes away. This person's life has passed away. Maybe the wisdom of knowing that the plane is like a, it's like a, a village. It's got 400 people in it. In a village of 400 people, people get born, people die. And I wished for that person and for that person's family that they would be strengthened in being able to meet this. And I felt better when I was wishing that. And it settled my own unnervedness. I realized that I was unnerved because I thought to myself, I hope I don't die on a plane. But then I realized I have no control at all about where I die. And neither does anybody. But I do have control about what I can do with unnerved and what I can bring to myself and to the situation is compassion. I'm unnerved. These things happen. May I be well. May you be well. May all beings be well. I don't know what I would have, how I would have responded or if I'd been as settled if it had happened right next to me, but I was steady enough to be able to do that and was really glad for the ability to pray. So I'll tell you the third story. It's a French story, but it's not in a plane. Um, and, uh, because to complete the three variations of equanimity, to talk about metta, we have to talk about compassion, we have to talk about appreciation, buddhita, really uh, rejoicing in other people's good fortune or happiness, which ought to be very easy to do, except if what they have is something that what you want. And then it gets actually surprisingly difficult, even for good-hearted people. So the story is that I went, uh, I went to a ski resort not, uh, my husband and I went to a ski resort not far from where we live in France uh, on one winter day. Just drove up, it was a two-hour drive, to watch the skiers, see the ski resort, and watching people skiing on a, on a really easy baby hill, really a beginner's hill. And we skied for years and years and I loved it, and we were pretty good, and we would race each other down long hills. And I suddenly really, and we gave it up 10 years ago. 
and I suddenly really wanted to ski, and I said, you know, we could ski on this hill, you know. Next time we come, let's, we'll pick a sunny day just like that, we'll rent skis, we'll ski on this hill, look, it's a really easy hill. It's like an inclined plane, it's not even a hill. <laughs> and he said, no, he said, forget about it. You can't do it. We're old. <laughs> and you have back trouble and you have neck trouble and it would be a, not a good idea. Forget about it. And let's go have lunch up on the deck. So we trudge off. He steps off and I'm trudging off after him. And I had been feeling, I, I, I remember this, I had been in such a thrilled mood to be up there and I was feeling so sporty and I was really, I was wearing my extremely beautiful high-heeled fur-lined, fake fur-lined boots. I felt very elegant and young. And as we walked along the deck of this restaurant to sit down for lunch, I saw a reflection of myself in the mirror. And I looked shorter and chubbier and uh, not nearly as elegant as I had imagined myself to be five minutes before. <laughs> I sat at the table, I realized that I was, um, I was upset and I thought about, um, I, I was feeling peeved. And for minutes I thought I would talk to him about feeling peeved about his peremptory response. But I realized that what I was peeved about was being old. And so fortunately, I did not talk about the peremptory response. And we had lunch, and while we had lunch, I noticed two women sitting next to me at the next table. And they looked my age and my size, and they were all made up beautifully. They dressed beautifully in beautiful non-skiing jackets, beautiful clothing, beautiful earrings, big earrings. I remember coveting the earrings, beautiful. And I looked at them and I thought, I really, my heart rejoiced that these women, they were talking and eating and laughing and having such a good time and not skiing. <laughs> and I looked at them and it was like wisdom went back into my head. Then is then, now is now. And I did that then, I can't do it now. I'll get some earrings pretty soon. <laughs> But the truth is that what happens is that the mind wobbles when it sees something that it wants and it can't have it. And it wobbles and it gets unhappy until it gets some wisdom back into it, until it balances itself. I feel like, phew, I narrowly escaped picking a fight, which would have been unwise. I ended up uh, finding that I actually was wishing them uh, Murita wishes, you beautiful women, may you continue to have lunches together and wear beautiful clothing and enjoy the sunshine. And As we left, I was watching the uh, really little children at the bottom of the hill learning to ski. Beautiful little girl in pink ski parka and pants and tripping over her skis and her trying to get her ski poles on. And, probably three years old, and she looked like my children did 40 years ago. And um, 
I wished for her so much that she would have a life of skiing and happiness. And it was just such, such a great relief to be able to turn the situation around and take what I couldn't have into wishing well for other people for what they did have. Those are the three permutations. You'll notice that you are living either in metta, karuna, mudita, or upeka. Probably tomorrow in the afternoon, in the, or in maybe in one of the other times, but surely in the afternoon teaching time, there'll be some more talk about, maybe more teaching about how really to work with phrases around uh, compassion or mudita practice, how to make up your own, or how to use some phrases that people have found are useful. But mostly, I hope what I conveyed to you is that the important move in being able to wish well to anyone is to be able to be settled in the wisdom that everyone is just like me, wanting to be happy, challenged by life, hoping to be free of suffering. It connects me to everybody else in the world, and I can care about them, and I can pray for them, and I can rejoice for them. That's the great premise of this practice, is really to feel connected to the whole world and not separate from anybody in it. I'll read you that one part of the Metta Sutta that says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, the living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Thank you very much. Now that you all have this copy of the Metta Sutta, I hope you will be here for the chanting in a half hour. And uh, Heather will lead you in the classic chant. You'll notice that on the copy that you have, there are little markings, which means that your voice will go up or down. So come back and do that together with Heather at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.